Welcome back to The Duck Stops Here, a podcast from the University of Oregon. I'm Michelle Joyce Fife, and on today's show, we feature two twins who work directly across the hall from each other. One is a marriage therapist, and the other, a divorce lawyer. No, it's not the premise for a new TV show. It's the story of Mike and Andrew Lerner, a couple of 2014 grads currently living in Orange County. And so I see my brother and I working in very reciprocal fields, um, which is, it, it's mind-bending to a couple people. They're like, but, but he does divorce and marriage therapists save marriages. And it's cool when we get to educate people and they kind of listen to our different perspectives. And it's frankly, it is kind of two sides of the same coin. When some people look at us from the outside, it is kind of funny. It is sometimes a joke that you've got a, a divorce lawyer and a therapist together. Thanksgivings are fun. <laughs> Throughout the episode, the brothers discuss the symbiotic nature of their professions, despite the initial humorous contrast. They emphasize their shared goal of helping people through tough times and highlight the advantages of their collaborative approach when working together on cases. A big welcome to Mike and Andrew. Thank you, you guys, for taking the time to meet with us and to be on the alumni podcast and everything. We're super psyched that you're able to do it. And um, as I was describing this podcast episode to my colleagues, I kind of felt like I was pitching a TV show. It's like, I feel like I'd watch that show. Um, I wanted to just kind of start off and have each of you sort of describe what your jobs are. Sure, absolutely. I, um, I graduated the University of Oregon in 2010 with my brother. Uh, I graduated with a degree in communication and marketing and general social science and didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. My mom, who was an attorney, said, you're going to go to law school. And I kicked and screamed, but ended up making it there to San Diego at California Western School of Law. And uh, after three years, I graduated with my JD. Uh, I passed the California bar and became an attorney and started practicing family law from there until right around where the pandemic hit um, is when I started to reevaluate my position at the firm and started to think about different ways I could help the community better than just through my lens of being an attorney. So I went to Pepperdine, got my master's in dispute resolution, and started mediating cases. And so taking on that alternative dispute resolution lens, I opened up this company here, Learner Conflict Resolution Center, and I've been mediating cases as well as litigating some with an emphasis on family law and also taking in community cases, um, general civil cases, and kind of getting my hands dirty in these last five years um, building my experience and building the brand. So at this point, I, I wear a couple different hats and uh, I like that diversity and I like just growing with myself and with the business. So excited to be here and thank you for having us. This is awesome as well. Oh, this is so good. And I, I would like to dive more into the conflict resolution stuff in a moment, but uh, Michael, you are all conflict resolution. Yes, I am. Um, but from a but in a different profession. Yeah. So uh, my name is Mike Lerner. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist here in Orange County, California. And to echo my brother, thank you so much for having us on. I um, I've been like giddy ever since you, the first email. So I've been really looking forward to this. Um, so uh, like my brother, we graduated at, uh, from the University of Oregon in 2014. Um, I uh, was kind of a unique story. I was one of, I think it was like 14% of incoming freshmen our year had a declared major, and I was one of them. Um, so I graduated with a bachelor's of science in clinical psychology. I graduated also with a uh, substance abuse and prevention program certificate, a minor in 
uh, special education. And I'm planning on in the next year or two uh, contacting the uh, um, the university again. I, I want to finish out. I'm three sh credits shy of a sociology degree, and I'm two credits high of a philosophy degree. So I want to go back and do those because um, I really love those two fields as well. Um, after that, um, I had a professor at Oregon, Dr. Dan Close, who said, you know, Mike, you strike me as somebody who would really enjoy therapy, um, maybe go to my alma mater, Cal Lutheran University in Thousand Oaks, California. So um, I did that and I got my master's in marriage and family therapy. Um, but because I just love the field and I want to learn more and um, be a leader in the field, I decided to go back to school for my psychological doctorate or my PsyD in marriage and family therapy um, with the California School for Professional Psychology here in Irvine. And I actually, as of Tuesday, am now officially a doctoral candidate. Um, ah, pending, congratulations. Thank you very much. Pending my dissertation, um, which hopefully will be done in the next six to nine months. And then I will be uh, Dr. Mike. So we're, that's where we're going and that's where we've been. So um, pleasure to be here and pleasure to be with you guys. Dr. Mike's been a long time coming. <laughs> so excited for that. Has he always made you call him that? Or no? <laughs> no, no. And then when I passed the bar and got my degree, it's a doctorate of it's a Juris Doctorate, and so we'd go to events, and he would say, I'm Dr. Andy, you know, the lawyer, and I would say, no, if you ever meet a lawyer who calls himself doctor, just, you know, <laughs> run for the disregard hills. it yeah. completely. So I'm excited to finally have a doctor in the family, a real doctor. Yeah, and it's cool because, like, you know, he gets a degree, I get my degree, and we just kind of, we, we always push each other, like, oh, what are you going for this time? Oh, master's in mediation. Oh, I'm going to go, for, you know, I'm still working on my doctorate in psychology, and then we, you know, hopefully one day that pushes us to maybe another level of education, um, whether that's as a student or as a teacher. So I just love how we, we've both kind of uh, shared that love for education. And it's frankly, it is kind of two sides of the same coin when we get down to it. And I know we'll talk more about that later, but you know, as from a family law attorney to a marriage and family therapist, um, I see them sometimes as conflicting and in some aspects they're symbiotic as well too. There's a lot of good that we can do as a collaborative but when some people look at us from the outside, it is kind of funny. It is sometimes a joke that you've got a, a divorce lawyer and a therapist together. But I think we make it work really well. And um, yeah, Thanksgivings are fun. <laughs> and you can refer clients to each other mm -hmm. occasionally. Mm -hmm. And we have. I've been running my business for about a year now in my private practice. And he's referred me three or four cases. And I've tried to refer him one or two. And as we grow and have more of a base, I'm sure that there will be more of a relationship between us. But um, I, th I feel I'm still in the growing phase of my business, so time will tell. So who has the harder job? <laughs> <laughs> we asked this question right before we started, and we oh, thought that it was, it was a good question. It's a great question. Because I think he'll say that I have the harder job, and I think that he <laughs> has the harder job. Um, you can't separate the emotions in either of our fields, but I try my best to remove the, um, the interest from the positions. And I think that that does a fair bit in helping resolve cases when you focus on things objectively. Um, and so to that end, I try not to delve too much into the, the gooey stuff, the, the, the mud, if you will, and play in the mud. But I think that I have experience in that. And I think that in my career to be able to do what I do, you have to be able to uh, absorb emotions one way or the other and come out on the other side. And for some people, it's turning the light off when you walk out of the office is the same thing as turning the emotion off when you leave. But I carry it with me and I think that's to some good and to some bad. Um, 
And I think that there's a peak stress level that we try and get to where it's uh, motivating you, but also not hindering you. And so I'm balancing that right now in my career and we'll see how long it lasts. Um, a lot of people call me naive kind of at the start for being so positive about everything, but uh, I'm going to try and ride it for as long as I can. But I think my brother has the harder job. Um, <laughs> I think, um, it, it, so So I, I would just make the distinction that, so I own and run my own practice. Um, and I didn't quite mention that earlier. So I run and own five-star marriage and family therapy. Um, I'm the clinical director, the accountant, the CEO, the CF, like I, I wear every hat. Um, uh, so from that perspective, I think we, we, I would say we're very equal in that sense where we both run our businesses and we are um, active in the field. As a therapist, I would absolutely say that my brother has the harder job because, you know, the he has uh, at any one time like one or two people above, whether it's a judge or a jury or a court um, that he has to kind of answer to. My only answerings are to uh, the Board of Behavioral Sciences out here in California, um, HIPAA, obviously, uh, federal regulations, and to my patients. And um, like my brother was saying, like I, you know, it's it's very juxtaposed in a lot of ways, but it's also very symbiotic. And I think it's reciprocal um, in our field, in my field. Um, we talk a lot about uh, the differentiation of self. So like the ability to separate yourself from the family system or from the, the cultural unit or the societal unit and function independently. And I've always critiqued that and saying, you know, we can be independent and together at the same time. Uh, a lot of the theorists in my field have talked about how those two things are uh, opposing forces, this idea of individuality and togetherness. I submit um, through a couple of the critiques, uh, yeah, I got to throw out McGoldrick and Hardy because I'm totally citing their work, um, this idea of like uh, reciprocal nature of the two. And I think that's the way that I see my brother and I is that um, marriage therapy is not about saving marriages. Sometimes my job is to come in and make people realize that this is something that needs to evolve and that evolution might look like sitting with my brother or that evolution may be sitting with a judge um, or in sometimes uh, adult protective services or child protective services, but it's an evolution of the relationship. And so I see my brother and I working in very reciprocal fields, um, which is, it, it's mind bending to a couple people. They're like, but he does divorce and marriage therapists save marriages. And it's cool when we get to educate people and they kind of listen to our different perspectives. I'll go to him with a very like um, legalistic question. I'm like, all right, Ann, I need a, a straightforward, like, is this illegal? And he'll say, no, thank you. He'll come to me for an answer. I'm like, well, you know, um, Socrates once said, he goes, Mike, 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 <laughs> snippet. <I'm> like, yes. <laughs> so um, we are really reciprocal forces and I love working cases. There's, I, I do very much look forward to the times when he calls me and he's like, hey, what are your thoughts on case X and case Y? And I'm like, oh, well, my thoughts are, and, and we get to work together. So it's, it's really cool to see the, the cases that we work. And um, last thing I'll say is just the, the cases that we do work together, I find to have um, a much higher success rate. Um, the research in Marfield is very clear that when there is a team and collaborative approach to a patient, um, there's going to be better outcomes. And so a lot of people see that as like a psychiatrist or a social worker. I consider my brother to be a part of that as well. And so when he gets involved, that a lot of times calms the anxiety in the system and I'm able to do much better work. And I, I hope he's able to do much better work when I step in. I think ultimately we're both trying to help people and we've picked different career fields to do that and different um, professional accreditations to get there. But I think our goal both is to help people um, 
and to, we have an opportunity here with these businesses to do that with autonomy and with flexibility and with the freedom to design something that's really genuinely about helping people. It's not profit-based. It's not about making money for us. It's about helping people get through what is really one of the toughest parts of their lives. Um, so I say we both have hard jobs. Yeah. Can we, can we, can I think we give you an do. equal on that one? I think you do. I'm glad that you have each other because it would be very easy in either of your jobs to sort of, uh, like you were talking about, not turn off the light when you leave, leave the office and think about it. And uh, people are putting a lot of intense emotions and things and just like on you. And uh, having somebody who really understands help you sort of brush it off and be like, it's okay. Like your job isn't to do anything but what your job is. So like, you're not supposed to fix the family. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to make sure that everyone's happy in the end of the divorce or whatever. I mean, actually, I would like to know more about your role as a mediator and what the goals are. So plain and simple to rub a few people the wrong way. Um, I find that the legal system for family law is a bit antiquated. And I think that it, in my experience, I worked for a top family law attorney in Orange County. Um, he's a fantastic guy. His firm is fantastic. But what I found in working in that area was that people were spending more money and more time than I thought was necessary. Just straight up, I felt like divorce is hard enough. Why get the courts involved? Well, the courts have been involved for a long time, and there are obviously reasons why the judicial system is necessary for a dissolution of marriage. But I really feel like these are problems that people can work out themselves, especially when there's kids involved. You have a judge who takes your case, and it's relatively speaking, you are a number, and you're going before that judge, and he's going to make custody orders about your child. Um, A case I recently had was a four-year-old child with autism, and one of the parents wanted to move the kid to Canada. The dad was well set up in San Diego and had all the right resources for the kid, schools, therapists, help, family support, a whole system. And mom wanted to unilaterally move the child. This is something that regardless of what path they're going to take, the child is going to suffer in some capacity because he's not with both parents. So how do we figure out a plan to co-parent and to put him in a position of success without creating this unilateral move? Um, either to Canada or San Diego. And that's a case that could be mediated, in my opinion. And we can come to a resolution outside of court that's going to be the both of the parties working together to do what is in their best interest for the child's best interest. And in a situation like that, where it's wholly about the child, it, in my opinion, it makes sense to let the parents work it out because you're going to get an agreement that's more concrete. Everybody's going to be um, able to work with it. And if there's a problem, A, we get to go back and and negotiate it before going to the courts. So it creates kind of a buffer. Mm -hmm. And when you do go before a judge and you do get those final orders, sometimes one of the two parties is going to walk out and not be thrilled with the results. And so when you're able to mediate that case and you're able to come to an agreement that's for everybody, you're going to walk out and yeah, people might not still be thrilled about it, but at least they were part of creating the solution and not only does that help the child, not only does that help the family, but in a really big global perspective, not to get too out there, but it's going to help society really when we, as a co- co- collective, um, 
you know, work on how do we fix the problem instead of taking it to somebody to arbitrate or adjudicate it. So I think that that globally is, is something that, you know, I want to make the world a better place. And I think we can do that through communication because in my career, what I've found is that no matter how big or small the problem is, it boils down usually to a miscommunication or a difference in expectations. And once you get people together and start talking about it, those walls break and then people are able to come together and I've gotten hugs, handshakes, I've settled cases over an In-N-Out cheeseburger. And when you see those kinds of things, you realize that the principle of the problem is really just their inability to communicate with each other. So once you break down that wall, it's, it's awesome to see people come to a resolution and, and smile and nod their head and just be happy about the process. So it takes something that's really negative off the bat and turns it into something that can really be positive. And I think you just did a great job explaining what's the same about your jobs, helping mm-hmm. people communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate my brother because I, I, I tell my patients in my, in my practice um, or on, on my couch, I say, you know, you have two options really in the state of California. Either you mediate this and you have a very strong hand in how this goes, or you give up control and you let the courts decide. And I personally, if I'm making a decision in my life, I don't necessarily love being told exactly what to do with, you know, legal recourse. Um, I'd rather work something out and have a conversation. And I think that's one thing that my brother and I both really agree on is, is the power of communication. And I think, you know, that's one thing that we as a society lack so much nowadays is this ability to sit and communicate. We're so wired to be confrontational. And I see that in my practice. If, if we just make the broad assumption just for the moment that people will come to me first, my brother second, and like it, it, that's kind of like the flow, if you will, of like, yeah, we tried marriage therapy and now we're with a mediator and now we're with an attorney. Um, that's why I really enjoyed referring, or referring to my brother um, because one, I know that he's really in it to help people. And two, I know that we come from a same, a very similar modality. We come from a very similar goal. We want people to communicate. We want the choice of people's lives to be put into the hands of the families and the parents, not the courts. Yep. Because the courts, you know, I, I don't have as much experience as my brother does in court. I have a little bit working in community counseling centers and working in community mental health. You know, unfortunately in this state, the courts and community mental health are very, um, you know, you can't, you really won't work in one without working in the other. Uh, I've seen a lot of like, you're a number, you're a case file. I talked, I've talked to multiple public defenders and multiple prosecutors who I have to remind them of the name of the patient. And I'm like, I know like their whole life story. I'm like, their dog is sick right now and you don't know their first name. So I think we both agree on that. I think that's one of the beauties that if you come to our organization, whether it's my practice or my brother's practice, um, you know that you will get that reciprocity between the two of us. And I think that that's something that we're really trying to build in the community. Um, I try to make it known to all my kind of like therapist friends that my brother is a, is a mediator. He's an attorney and he, we worked side by side. And a lot of my therapist friends are like, oh, lawyers, we, we don't like lawyers. And I say, well, we like this one. This one, this one gets it. So, and I just want to clarify, like, because I feel like we're not on a high horse or anything. I'm not a, in my life in the last couple of years, especially after Pepperdine and my master's degree, I learned how to communicate in my relationships and learned how to how to have that relationship with my partner right now. And we learned that she's also um, pursuing mediation and she's in law school right now. And what we found was 
when we communicate, we fix problems way better than when we're thinking about ourselves or we're being individualistic about it. So I don't want to say that we're masters at communicating or that, you know, the world needs to be better at communicating. But we found that in situations where tensions are high and emotions are high, and this is certainly an area where that's the case, that communication can break down those barriers in a way that that other resources can't. And so to that end, we like to push people to try and communicate. And if they can't communicate or if they want to be adversarial, again, the court is there and my boss will like that I say, you know, he said, you'll never steal a client from me because my clients want to go to war. He's a trial attorney. He wants that adversarial litigation. And to that end, he gets great results for his clients when people aren't able to communicate. But, you know, let's give it a shot and let's see if we can work this out um, before you go down that path of time consuming, costly, uh, legal mumbo jumbo, which I just think can be avoided in many cases, not everyone, but in some. Absolutely. Well, you definitely don't sound like you're on a high horse at all. I think if anything, you both sound very invested in making the world better and helping people through some of the most difficult moments in their lives. Um, so I, and I remember when I spoke to you before, you both gave a little shout out to your mom and mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of leave space for that here because it sounds like those values really come from her and uh, I'm just curious she sounds cool I'm curious to hear more oh, absolutely I mean my mom one thing that she instilled in us very early on is that you talk out your problems right we don't live in a vacuum we live in a family and I think that it's if you really look at like the therapeutic theories that I personally practice, you can trace a lot of those back to the teachings that our, that our mom taught us when I was very young. Um, this idea that, you know, you can live your life, but you're always part of the family. Um, this idea that we work better when we communicate and we talk about what's going on. We don't live in this, you know, I'm going to sit here and be angry at you and you're going to have no idea why. Um, we sit down, we talk about our problems. I remember when we were kids, she would sit us down at the kitchen table and we, you know, you got out of that chair, it was hell to pay, but she, she really encouraged us to sit there, talk, express our feelings, express how we're um, seeing a situation or seeing the world, uh, meditate, which was really big for uh, four kids under five at one point, and then eventually five kids under six. She would have us, you know, focus on a point in space, breathe, relax, and Instilling that in us at a young age was monumental, I think, in, in our success. And um, the ability to ask for help. I think that was the one of the biggest things that my mom taught me was that it, it doesn't say anything negative about you to ask for help, but it says something incredibly positive about you when you do. And I think that that's something that we try to instill in our clients and our patients is we don't know unless you tell us. And we try to create a safe environment, a comfortable environment. You've obviously seen our offices, and we try to make it a very warm and empathetic space. Um, but I think providing that as a person is just as important as providing the physical, like, accoutrements, right? Mm -hmm. So I think my mom really taught us to be warm, to be compassionate, to be empathetic, and um, altruistic, really. You know, do things because it's the right thing to do, not because somebody's going to um, recognize you for it in the future. Uh, my mom's done a ton of volunteer work. She used to have us volunteer at the Santa Ana food, uh, soup kitchen in the mornings um, on Saturday mornings when we were in high school. We'd drive out there as a family. We'd spend I don't know, two or three hours there, and then we'd get in the car and we'd drive home. And it wasn't for recognition, and it wasn't for 
you know, to post on Instagram. It was, we went, we were of service and we left and that was how we were raised. And so even when we went to Oregon, I think both of us did a little bit of volunteer work. Uh, University day was a really big day for me. I still have all the t-shirts and I love them. Um, but I never missed a university day. And I thought that just, um, that being of service in, in unique and creative ways was definitely one of the things that I got from mom. Working at the rec center. Yep. First day that we were on campus within the first hour, I think that we were on campus. We saw a huge line to, for job applications at the rec center. Um, looking back on it, you know, we, it was a highly sought after position. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of people got selected from the hundreds of people that apply to work at that gym. And we got that job. Mm-hmm. Um, not really as a way for income through college, but to contribute to the community mm-hmm. first day, first hour. Um, and so that was really cool. And especially with the university that helped connect us and create a base that I think was really cool. But mm-hmm. uh, just about my mom, I would say team player, um, because like you mentioned, we had a big family growing up. We had a lot of siblings. And at one point there were five of us that were uh, under 10 years old and we would walk around and my mom would say it was herding sheep. Um, <laughs> it's a busy mom. Yep. We would, we were in Arizona. We would go to Tucson when we were super young and she would herd us around and we would go to the boot barn to buy cowboy boots. We were all super small and go in and get the cowboy boots. And the guy said, you know, you got yourself a herd. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that forever. It's awesome. But the way that she could keep us all together and, and encourage being a team player and thinking about the person on the left and the right. Um, which is awesome, like growing up in that that uh, community, I guess you could say. Very cool. How did you end up uh, at Oregon? Oh, I give a lot of credit to Mr. Steve Prefontaine. Uh, my brother and I growing up were uh, cross-country runners. Uh, my brother much faster than, than I was in high school. I, I did get the, the pleasure and, and honestly the privilege to run with him on varsity, my well, our senior year. for that one. Um, <laughs> He was much faster than me in high school. I, I got a little faster than him in college, but um, having that basis of being in nature, being outside, being recreational, being active, um, I think we, we were in Eugene for maybe an hour on our first uh, our first trip up there, and we were already on Hayward Field. The first picture I have of my brother and I at the University of Oregon is us sitting standing on Hayward Field and then being... Um, uh, escorted off by one of the <laughs> athletic staff. And, How did and, you get up here? And now, you know, I, I worked for the athletic staff and I worked for the rec center. So now I'm like, I, I became that guy where I'm like, hey, got to get off the track. And I'm like, oh, I've turned into the thing <laughs> that I despise. But, um, uh, you know, Prefontaine and his story and just that is kind of what got me interested in it in the university. And then just being in Eugene is what sold me. It's if If I was 5% brought in with, with pre and the story of, um, you know, coach Bowerman and, and everything having to do with like the track and field program. Um, Eugene is the 95% that made me stay. Um, I, I fell in absolute love with the city. I fell in absolute love with the, with the campus and with the people. And, um, this is going to be a very, very hot take, but I love me some liquid sunshine. I <laughs> love the rain. So the weather in Eugene was perfect for me. Um, especially as a runner, I don't think a lot of people really appreciate after you, you've lived in Orange County in the desert and you go for runs at 112 degrees. It's really nice running when it's like 50 degrees and like misting. It's perfect running weather. (laughs) So, um, you know, I just, I, I think what brought me to the university of Oregon is the city of Eugene. 
And I remember walking down 13th. Um, we had gone and seen Hayward. We had taken the tour of the campus and we were walking down 13th with the trees lining both sides. And we both looked at each other like in unison and we're like, I want to go here. And we had toured some other schools in California and had different perspectives on where we wanted to go and always kind of thought we would end up at two different schools. Um, and so when we were walking down 13th for us to both say we're going here, it was crazy. Now we're both going to the same school. Turns out we both roomed together freshman year in the Living Learning Center, fourth floor. We'll yeah. never forget it. LLC and North. So it turned into, you know, from us being probably on separate ends of the state or wherever we at, ended up to to living in the same room for the first year mm-hmm. um, was really cool. Um, I know that pre for you is a huge deal for why you wanted to go down there. Um, the way I describe it a lot, we grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. We lived there for 13 years until we moved out here. Um Cleveland is obviously a little colder and a little chillier than California. So when we got to Oregon, it kind of felt like I described it as as California and Ohio kind of mixing together. Mm -hmm. It had the climate, it had the seasons, it had the rain, but it also had the people that you can come to expect on the West Coast. And I thought that it was a really cool um, just amalgamation of different personalities and everything. And the people that came up from California to stay in Oregon had that understanding of the rain and and the elements and things. So they weren't as... I'd say jaded as the Orange County folk around here sometimes are. It's not a diss. But uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed the seasons and I enjoyed waking up in every day, kind of being a little bit different. Um, and man, there's so many reasons to love the University of Oregon. I'm serious. It was coming up. It was such an accessible school for California residents. And so then once we got there, we immediately made friends, made family. And it just man, I could, we couldn't have picked a better school. Oh, we yeah. really couldn't have. Yeah. The community and getting that job at the rec center put us right in the middle of everything. I joined a fraternity um, and just it provided everything. Yeah. I mean, I, the sports, are you kidding? Going to Autzen Stadium for a football game was incredible. We were there when the new basketball stadium got built and we were part of the first season there. Yeah. Amazing to see the Jayquaw Center uh, which is where I started my negotiation kind of career and learned about alternative dispute resolution is at the time, I mean, one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. And now, I mean, as an alumni looking back at it, it's only gotten better. Yeah. I mean, beforehand, uh, Jayqua, sometimes I forget the name. And so I was looking up, what's the name of the glass building at the University of Oregon? It popped up three of them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> when we were there, an all glass building was cutting edge. Now, the, the campus is lined with them. And I think yeah. that shows how much people love the school, how the donors care about building up the school and its reputation. And it's just surpassed itself at every turn. And it just continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And it's awesome. It's so cool. Uh, but we were there in the, in the prime football days. And that was really cool, too. Uh, Kenyon Barner. Who yeah, else? Darren Thomas. Anthony Thomas. Uh, Marcus Mariota. My boy Marcus. Um yeah, uh, I had the, I mean, we, we got to watch Justin Herbert come up. We got to see a bunch of different um, amazing athletes. And, you know, not to mention our women's sports were pretty dominant at the time as well. Um, I got the opportunity to uh, make some friends with some guys in the pit crew. So, you know, it'd be like a Thursday at four o'clock. And like, we're going to women's volleyball. Like, sounds good. Let's go. And, and <laughs> you know, here are these, these wonderful athletes. And, you know, being a part of the Pac-12 was also just in, incredible. Who's um, the star runner? Oh, um, we well, we had um, oh my gosh, who's even I believe on this podcast? Oh, oh, you're talking about Ash Neaton. So the 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 um, 
Hi, Ashton. Um, <laughs> <laughs> huge Very fan. excited to be here. Um, uh, so, yeah, and I mean, just being there and, and being exposed to that, one of the one of my all-time favorite mo- memories is uh, the triathlon team was actually out for a run, and um, we were we were coming around um, uh, uh, Hayward on the on the sidewalks heading up to, I think we were heading up to Hendrix, or we were heading somewhere um, that was going to be super uh, oodles of fun, and Ashton came around the corner, and, I mean, you would have thought that the president of the United States just turned the corner with, like, you know, his whole entourage, and it was just uh, Ashton, and I'll never forget just watching him, the way that he, it, it, I'm going to sound like a super running nerd, but, like, the way that he composed himself when nobody was watching, right? The way that he trained, the way that he was so committed to what he was um, doing and what he was focusing on, and uh, he, he came up beside us, and we got to run with him for a little bit, and it's just something that I'll never forget. But being at Oregon, um, I remember I was walking uh, up to the EMU, and walking straight at me was Chip Kelly. And uh, Chip Kelly is one of my, like, football idols. I, I, I was a huge fan, or am a huge fan of Coach Kelly. And um, I, I just kind of, I, I stopped, and I, hey, Coach, how's it going? And he stopped, and he asked me how I was doing. And I was like, is this – Am I being punked? Is, is this like a is this like a viral thing that's going to go on Instagram? And no, he just stood there and he talked to me for about five minutes. Well, yeah, how are you enjoying the season? How are your classes going? I'm like, this is this is amazing. That's and so cool. It was unbelievable. And um, the last thing I'll mention is just uh, I was telling you about beer league track. It's uh, Hayward puts on um, or it used to put on. I hope it still does. And if it doesn't, I hope um, they start back to it. But it was a, a community track and field events um, on Hayward Field on, like, the weekends. And I had the the opportunity to play uh, beer league hockey over at the ice station. Um, and so I would play beer league hockey, and I grew up playing hockey. And um, I would leave beer league hockey to go to beer league track. And we'd run, you know, all kinds of events. And uh, the amount of Oregon track coaches that would come out to those and runners and just seeing these guys that are future Olympians and just the most amazing athletes come out um, – uh, um, one of the Oregon track coaches actually asked me, um, one of my last races there, he goes, all right, well, yeah, you're running the mile, right? I'm like, yes, sir. He goes, all right, well, what are you going to go for? I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to go four four fifty five maybe. He goes, all right, kid, you're going to run this in 450. And I ended up running it in 449, which is still my, my PR. Um, but just the fact that he came up and talked to me like a, a total scrub and, you know, treated me like he was one of his own was just one of the coolest experiences. And it's just, you don't have ego at Oregon. And that's one of the things that I always loved is that anybody, anywhere, I saw Marcus Mariota stop on 13th Street and talk to people every day going to work. I saw, you know, so many people just stop and like just chat and you lose the ego so quickly. Remember when you met Sam Elliott? Oh my God. And like a grocery yeah, store. Yeah, market of choice right next to right next to Matt Knight. Uh, Sam Elliott was standing in the checkout line and I heard him say one thing. I just needed to hear him say one sentence and he goes, Thank you very much. I'm like, oh my God, Sam Elliott. But I mean, my... he was so nice. Oh like I, re- I think you you called like five people, you know, yep. and like had yep. him on speaker and this this man was so nice. Lost to like, mind. You know, record voicemails for everybody back in the day. You oh, know? So well, and then you were on a plane with him like a year later. And yeah. you asked him about it, and he remembered it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which was mind-blowing. Good times, fun times. Oh, my gosh. And so it must have been pretty different because, Mike, you knew going in mm-hmm. that you wanted to study psychology, and you had your career trajectory. Mm-hmm. And then, Andrew, you didn't really decide until your senior year, really, kind of what your focus was going no to be. No clue. No clue. Almost threw an expletive in there. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> 
And the cool thing about the University of Oregon was that, and I think it's probably true for most college campuses, but the university had so many different areas that I could go and take classes in. And I allowed myself to take classes in astronomy, astrology, music history, um, music theory. I took classes in um, economics, business, geology, literally anything I could get my hands on that that seemed interesting to me. And I took core classes like business and economics and different things like that. But um, the undergrad program just allowed me so many electives and so many different things. And then by my third year and my fourth year, I, I had no concrete major requirements um and again another thing that i think is really cool that now in my experience post undergrad i've found with people that are friends that have gone to other schools is the ability for the university of oregon to take you in with a career counselor or some sort of college guide that says these are how many units you need this is what your major should be this is how we're going to break it down it was so cool because i have a lot of uh (laughs) I have a lot of friends right now that are struggling with getting the right classes they need and the requisites that they need for a certain degree and not having a resource at the university to go to to find out where they stand and what they need. And I always thought that was absurd because the university like almost brought you in and set appointments for you to come in and make sure everything was was up to speed and if you needed anything or whatnot. So in my third or fourth year, I was able to go in and they said, well, you have classes in this department, you have classes in this category, let's get you on a general social science track. And I don't think they created a major for me, but in some cases they'll even create a degree for you to allow you to take classes and be versatile like that. So I think that's something the university did that's outstanding. And now looking back at it, it's the reason I got my degree. It's the reason I was able to move forward in my career path without having to take another year to figure it out. And then having the opportunity to figure it out on my own was really cool. So I had a really unique college uh, career, I'd, I'd like to think. I wanted to ask you about JQA and the class you took at JQA, that yeah. everything, you kind of had the epiphany. Right. Um, again, I took whatever I thought was interesting. And one of the things I thought that was really interesting was sports negotiation. Okay, one of the reasons I also took the class was because the JQA Center was brand new and they had this classroom where the seats were made out of Lamborghini leather. <laughs> now, who doesn't want to go and have a class where you can say you sat in Lamborghini leather? Very cool. And it turned out to be a class on sports negotiation, which um, a basic premise of it was like Tiger Woods is getting a new endorsement deal with Nike, but he wants to devote time and resources to visiting various charities or things like that. Construct an agreement that takes care of his needs while also satisfying Nike's needs, which was, you know, you have to wear a Nike logo on your clothing anytime you go out to an event or something like that. So it taught us how to negotiate and put us in that context. The other thing that they had was a big banner that said cooperation over competition. And like, I still get goosebumps thinking about that phrase because it just made me think about how a collaborative approach versus adversarial is going to just lead to better resources. And the ultimate goal of that was, you know, get Tiger Woods his deal that makes him happy and makes his sponsors happy. Awesome. Why do we have to live in a world where one side has to be happy and the other side has to give up on something? So I believe in compromise, which is when both sides give up a little bit to get to something better. But that's what this class was about. A little give, a little take. And it just, it changed my perspective on life moving forward as far as being collaborative. And then from there, I was able to take classes on the Israel-Palestine conflict. 
a class on the Northern Ireland conflict where you would get a role at the beginning of it and negotiate out over a 10-week course over, obviously, Israel-Palestine, which is something that's just an incredible conflict that's nobody's going to, in the college classroom, find the solution, but we're going to work at it. And that also taught me about the process of finding a roadmap, excuse me, finding a roadmap and laying it out and getting somewhere. So uh, cooperation over competition all day was awesome. And then meanwhile, Mike, you're going through your psychology classes and uh, we haven't even really talked about the experience of being a twin yet, Mm -hmm. but in psychology, twin studies are kind of the gold standard. And uh, as a twin, were Mm -hmm. your professors asking your input about human nature more than usual? Um, There were definitely some professors where I kept that information closer to the vest because I knew they would ask me like tons and tons of questions, especially in my like my developmental psych classes and, um, you know, my 201 and my, uh, let's see, I would have been my 201 class. Um, but the professors that did know I was a twin, we had fascinating conversations about that. Um, and I know a topic that you very much enjoy, the nature versus nurture debate um, or conversation, um, as seeing as how we're in a mediator office, like conversation, not debate. Um, but um uh, it, it definitely enlightened me, especially just seeing the parallels in the both of our lives um, from our choices of study to our choices of career to, um, you know, just all these different facets that lead us to make the choices that we do. Um, I remember one statistics class. It was with uh, Professor Pennyfather, and he said um, he said something to the extent of, if I could ever find twins, I'd study the crap out of them. And one of my friends was about to say, oh, Mike's a twin. I was like, shh, 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 shh. don't tell anyone. But um, no, I used to love, I used to love walking the halls of Straub. And um, a lot of people don't know, but Straub was ac- the old Straub. Um, I think it's been renovated since, but the old Straub was actually, uh, the, the hallways were different dimensional sizes as a psychological experiment to see if people would like get disoriented. So if you ever walked through Straub Hall and you felt disoriented, there's a good reason for that. Yeah. So on the top level, some of them were like, they would go narrow, wide, narrow, wide. And like the, the, um, dimensions were just like not standard and people would like have these really intense experiences um so i remember i did i did do because all psych students have to be uh participants in a lot of the psych studies um there was one psych study that i did get into because i was a twin and um that was pretty cool i only did it because it was anonymous and like so many layers of anonymity but i did do that study um and it was very interesting i mean it's, it's very interesting to have um that ability to juxtapose or be able to relate things. And I think that, you know, being a twin, being in psychology, um, it's definitely, it's like having, is it O negative blood? That's like the universal donor. Like everyone wants a piece of you. So um, it was really, it was really interesting to answer some of those questions and field some of those questions. But I definitely, I love being a twin and I love uh, having the twin that I do have because it's, it's really cool how we, you know, like you, you put us in the wash in a spin cycle, we come out and we're in the same field, but just different lenses. Yeah. Um, and I just think that that's like the coolest twin study you could do. I think so too. I think we're it's a living twin study. You guys are <laughs> living twin study. I, I love that when I asked you before, uh, nature or nurture, which one? Um, Mike gave a very thorough answer <laughs> that cited psychological studies. And Andrew was just like, nature. 
<laughs> so I, I I loved that because it was like very and and you were on the nurture side yes. as well. So you guys yes. were opposites. Well, I was hoping we could maybe talk a little bit about some of the greatest hits childhood stories i know there's got to be some shenanigans in your past as yeah. twins and i'm all ears oh well anyone who went to my wedding has to my brother told this story at my wedding i you got to tell it here too yeah One of my all-time favorites i mean you wouldn't tell it from this picture but we were identical growing up <laughs> for probably like six years of our lives the first six years we were like identical uh we had to wear different colored clothing to be told apart um and he would wear his hat front and i would wear my hat backwards when we were six years old yeah. um you'd wear red i'd wear blue red and blue exactly and we went to class a couple times and tried to switch spots essentially and would try and see how long the teachers could go without recognizing that the other person was sitting in their classroom. So I think we d we did it for a couple hours. I think was maybe the record that we got. Um, it was a little, it was long ago, so it's not a memory I have vividly. But um, our mom would tell us a lot that we would go to school and switch classes on each other and try and get away with it. And that was fun. It's not something fun. we can do anymore. Nope. Nope. Uh, <laughs> Those poor teachers. Can yeah. you imagine, like, kind of uh, just really eyeballing the kid? Like, is it? You? That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's some parent trap level shenanigans. And then there was just there was a bunch of times when we would have like our twin telepathy, and we would say the same thing at the same time, or we would both go for the same thing at the same time, and um, our our mom or our grandma or anyone around would just be like. Those twins, and we would just kind of know where each other was. I, I always enjoyed playing sports with my brother because you know we didn't have uh, we didn't have like that super high level like um, I don't know if you're a hockey fan, but like uh, the Sedin twins, like we didn't have that level of like wherewithal. But playing lacrosse with my brother was always fun because I knew his tendencies really well. He knew my tendencies really well, so it was always fun to kind of piggyback off of each other. And especially when we were running. Um, you know, he, I, I knew exactly where he was going to be on the course. He didn't really care where I was because I was behind him. But I knew where he was going to be, and I would use that to kind of pace off and find his shoulder and just try to stick to him as best as I could. Um, so it was definitely very motivational. Um, working out together, obviously, was also very, very useful um, growing up for us as runners. Uh, it's, it's really hard to run in a vacuum. It's, it's always so much easier to run with uh, teammates, and especially when my teammate was my brother. Um, it, it made it a lot easier. Um, we get to lament together and, and you know talk talk smack on the coaches that we didn't like, and you know elevate the coaches we did. And uh, it was just it was really cool to be able to have that experience with my brother and, and, and be able to do that. Well, we're polar opposites. I mean, we really are, and that's not a bad thing. We just um, like different things, and kind of our paths have diverged I guess after like six or seven years old from being like at the hip together to kind of having some independence and I think that the cool thing about that is that we still communicate like we are identical twins or fraternal twins mm -hmm. but we're completely different people but we come back to the same foundation and mm -hmm. I think that's what's cool about our relationship because we could easily just be very independent of each other a hundred percent and we've turned it into a very consistent concrete relationship that just kind of grows um and hopefully ages like fine wine you know and it's better with time and just one last thing about our mother is that she, i think the thing that she did for us that was really really impactful um among the, the hundreds of thousands of things but um it was really instill a value system 
Um, I think that's the thing that we always come back to when we say like we come back to that shared point of service, of being of service, of making yourself available, um, you know, taking the, the, the giving route, right? One book that our mom would read us very much so when we were younger was The Giving Tree. And that's a book that really stands out to me. She would read it to us because we shared a room for many, many, many years. And so she would come in and, you know, she would do the nighttime routine. She'd grab a book. And many nights it was The Giving Tree. And I think that if you look at what we've chosen to do as professionals, it really comes back to our mother instilling those value systems of service, of selflessness, of giving back as much as is humanly possible. Um, and so, you know, regardless of, you know, what music we listen to or what, what sports teams we're into or what, you know, any of that kind of stuff, we always come back to that shared home of be of service, be selfless and give of yourself to others. That's awesome. I'm wondering if you have any advice for uh, current students or recent graduates who are interested in going into your field? If you want to be a therapist, (laughs) so you want to be a therapist, (laughs) huh? Um, So if, if you're at the university right now and you're listening to this, first off, go back to studying. Um, But once you finish this podcast, um, I think my brother hinted at it beautifully. Take classes in the CFT program. Take classes in the psychology program. Talk to your professors. I would not be where I am today without Dr. Dan Close. Like if Professor Close hadn't been open to talking to me about being a marriage and family therapist, about going to Cal Lutheran, about getting into this program, he said, you know, listen, kid, this is not easy. This is not goodwill hunting where at the end of the movie, everybody goes off and has a, you know, everybody's smiling. Like this is a difficult job and realize right now, Whatever you think you know as a student is going to change 15, 16 times over when you get into the profession. And so what my suggestion is very simple. Take classes in the field. And then in those classes, the thing that I love about the university, there are so many opportunities to volunteer in our field. You're not going to be sitting in a session with a therapist listening to what they're saying because it's obviously highly illegal. Um, However, they will run you through vignettes. They will run you through... Um, There's a lot of documented therapy sessions out there that you can watch. Carl Rogers has an amazing, uh, I would say a seminal video series on working with, um, they're called the Martha tapes, if I'm not mistaken, but it's three theorists who are titans in our field working with the same patient. And just watching those, you realize therapy is not a game. Therapy is not just sitting in a, a chair with your warm beverage, listening to somebody's problems and giving advice. It's very complex. It's very deep. It's very involved. And so expose yourself to that. Expose yourself to some of these tapes and these resources that are out there. Um, and then be of service. Uh, Dr. Close uh, created the Relief Nursery in Eugene. I went there. I volunteered a couple of times at the Re- Relief Nursery. And it was an amazing experience. It was a very eye-opening experience. And it really made me ask myself, can I do this? Do I want to do this? And luckily my answer was yes. But if my answer was no, I'm 99% sure that the university would have helped me find something else to be uh, just as equally passionate about and give me the opportunity to succeed in that as well. Um, And so expose yourself to the field and humble yourself. I think humility is one of the things that 
if you can master recognizing the fact that you respectfully know nothing, you will learn everything. But you won't get there until you stop talking and you start listening. And I think that that's true for any major, any field, is expose yourself as much as you possibly can to the realities of the field and talk to people in the field. I'm always, I love when people come up to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about going for my doctorate. What do you think? I'm thinking about being a therapist. What do you think? And the first thing I just ask them is why? So know your why, understand your why, and um, expose yourself to the field. So that'd be, those would be probably the biggest things that I would recommend. My answer is different, <laughs> 100%. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that college is a unique time in people's lives to kind of explore and find themselves and see what clicks for you. And to that end, a lot of people that I worked with around that college time would tell me about how they found a job right out of college and then five years later, a different job and then a different job and then they found their home. And so I'm the kind of person who respects individuals who know what they want to do and go to college and get that degree and go after it. But for me, I use it as an opportunity to take as many different classes as I could and learn as much as I could about different things and learn about myself in the process, how I study, how I manage time, how to be responsible about time management. And I think that that was my um, path in college. And for my career, um, with respect to the pre-law uh, courses and curriculums that are out there. Many of them I don't think are actually getting you ready for law school in the way that uh, they're uh, branded to be or marketed out to be. And so I think that to that end, undergrad is a good opportunity to find something that you're interested in and passionate in while you begin to think about the concept of law school. Um, and then once you graduate and get that undergrad, if you wanted to go to law school, then you kind of, I think you start fresh at that point. At, in my career, I didn't know if the university offered, you know, contracts classes or criminal law classes that would prime you for law school necessarily. Um, and so to that end, I used it as an opportunity to just take whatever classes I thought were unique and interesting, aka music and sports psychology and things like that. So um, that's what I think college is super useful is learning those time management skills and learning how to be kind of an adult in a world where many people don't have that freedom. Um, and so I took full advantage of that. And I guess that would be my advice is just do your thing and just be excited about living in the moment. And I remember freshman year, I was like, I'm going to make every day an adventure, um, which is, was hard to do over the course of four years. But, uh, that's how I look at college as an opportunity. And so once you get into law school and you realize that this is going to be like a pretty crazy undertaking for the next couple of years, I felt a little less stressed out because I had had my, my fun, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. My mom might not be thrilled to hear that. one, <laughs> <laughs> it's But it's an honest answer. And I do think, um, you know, for example, when I worked at the rec center, I was late a lot. I was late by like five minutes all the time. And I learned time management and it really helped me because they shook me up a couple of times for being a couple minutes late. And I learned the importance of being on time to things because for me, five minutes was just five minutes, but for them it was respect and it was being, um, you know, on your game and just showing up. And so now in my life, I've taken that lesson and I've learned it. And so if I take anything from my college experience, it was beyond time. <laughs> Very cool. 
Is there anything I haven't asked you about that we, that you wanted to discuss? There was one thing for me. I just I, I wanted to recognize like two of the people who I think really shaped my experience at the University of Oregon, um, and just that service mentality and being of service. And uh, the first person is Rodney Bloom, um, absolutely incredible, incredible man. Uh, he was my I guess I could say he was my boss uh, for four years. And the thing that I just wanted to recognize with him and just kind of point out uh, that we talked about in our in our um, our last conversation was. The thing that I appreciate the most about the university is that the professors and the staff practice what they preach. Um, if, if you're in, so like Rodney, for example, so he is a master composter, um, and he was the, uh, I guess he was the head of Gerlinger operations, and he was a, a very big um, head of our department. And on the weekends, he would go and work at the uh, Eugene Compost Center. And he would volunteer his time as a master composter. And he would invite any one of us that wanted to go and get our hands dirty, literally, mm -hmm. to go and get our hands dirty. And one of the things that he always taught me was it doesn't matter what you're getting from something so long as you're giving of yourself. And that was something that really stuck with me. And here's this guy who is making a good salary from the university, has every right to just kind of come to work and do his job and go home. But instead... He is the first person to say, oh, what are you? what's going on? How is your day? How are you feeling? You don't have anything to do this weekend. Why don't you come compost with me? Um, he really practiced what he preached, and he really created that environment of open door, right? Come talk to me. And the other person uh, is Franny Mays. So Franny, uh, anyone who was in LLC uh, will know Franny. Uh, she worked at the, I think it was the Ducks Bistro that was downstairs, um, and she was one of the food service um, Supervisors, I believe is her title. Sorry, Franny. Um, but she also volunteers for an organization called HELP. And it is an organization that works with um, adopting uh, and veterinary services for dogs in Eugene. Because there's a very large need for that in um, Willamette County and all the surrounding areas. And so she runs or works with an organization um, that takes donations for beds, for vaccines, for spades, for neuters, for everything that you could possibly think of. And she would come and work these eight-hour shifts. She would work the, the 2 a.m. shifts at the, what was the place that had the frosty things in the dorm that was open until like 2 in the morning? Do you remember that? I'm bad she days. would be there until like 2 in the morning. And then she would be up at like six o'clock in the morning to go and volunteer with this organization. And to see somebody that otherwise would just kind of blend into the university fabric step out. And there's so many examples of this with people who would do that. But to see her, you know, bust her butt day in and day out, I saw her multiple times. If a student was kind of looking nervous about paying or was kind of stressed out, she would say, you know, hey, what do you, you know, what's going on? Um, and she would, you know, kind of make it known like, hey, can anyone help this guy out? And it was really special. She really cared about the students. Um, I can definitely attest to that. And just watching her um, bust her butt the way that she did. And when I go up to the university, I always make it a point to see her. And she's one of those people that the second she sees you, she starts crying. She'll start tearing up. And um, she's just one of the most loving and wonderful human beings I've ever had the, the absolute pleasure to know. And um, same thing with like Molly Kennedy at the rec center. Like these are people that just care so much. And it's not just a, you know, hey, come see me anytime. They really, truly mean it. And they show it in their actions. 
and there's no ego in it and it's it's really just a beautiful thing. So I just I wanted to shout out those three people because they really made my experience feel like I my brother said it earlier family. It, it really is the Oregon family and I've been at many organizations, I've been in many universities and I have never felt a sense of togetherness like I did when I was at the University of Oregon. Really, straight up. And now in our in our professional world, it, to find an organization or a community like that that actually is so familial and that brings people in, it's really hard to find. We got so lucky. And for that to have been one of our first experiences into the real world and to have an uh, organization like the university that just taught us all of these things, it's really hard to beat. And now that we go and, and go to different universities and I go and speak to different classes and have gone and worked with other colleges, uh, I've really grown to appreciate what the university does. And we really mean that with a lot of sincerity. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's incredible. It really is. And the family is just going to continue to grow and the university is just going to continue to get stronger and stronger. And we're just so excited to be a part of that. Like seriously, it's, it's amazing. And we're so happy to be able to speak on behalf of alumni um, it's really an honor. I can't, I can't believe that we got through this and you guys haven't had some <laughs> jump out thing that says we're here because one of you uh, <laughs> committed tax fraud or something, <laughs> and, you know, or this is an intervention or who knows. Uh, in my joke, I was like, well, I'm not going to admit to anything crazy because we haven't done anything crazy. Well, but we were wondering, like, this is too good to be true that the university would have us come out and speak on on their behalf, I guess, or just to share our stories. And so thank you so much. Oh, and thank if you. there's handcuffs waiting outside. This is not go. a sting operation, <laughs> I promise you. I'm like, what could it be? Oh what gosh. could the charges be? We're and so glad to have reconnected. Absolutely. And the university just such, does such a wonderful job with the alumni program. I get emails all the time. I know that there's functions in LA and Orange County. Um, I know that my friends down here in Orange County who are ducks, um, it, you know, it's, it's really that once a duck, always a duck. And, and that's the thing that has always stuck with me. And that's, um, I remember our graduation shirts for the class of 2014, they're green and they have this black writing on it, but it says, you know, once a duck, always a duck. And I wear that shirt with a lot of pride and it's, and even the, O. I mean, when you're out yeah. and about and you see somebody out and you give them the O or even the SCO ducks, which that was created like in our, <laughs> in our tenure. So everybody so in the future sorry. that has used this. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> We're but, so sorry. But there are those things that you can do and those symbols that just mean so much to the community anywhere we go and so i'm really excited to be wearing my oregon stuff around so yeah get more, more love yeah always a pride to say that i went to the university of oregon 100 so. awesome well go ducks go ducks, go ducks. <laughs> thanks you guys <laughs>